Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. Hello, fans of Takeaways. Get ready. We're dropping another NAOP Southern Nevada Programs Recap. NAOP is the Association for the Commercial Real Estate Development Industry. And this is the August program. The title was The Future of the Las Vegas Strip is Here. The panelists were Alan Feldman, Distinguished Fellow with International Gaming Institute at UNLV, and Josh Swissman, Founding Partner at the Strategy Organization. The program sponsor that morning was Southern Nevada Water Authority. This was one of those programs that left the audience much more informed about the evolutions of the Strip and the goings-on around tourism and sports in Las Vegas that we're all experiencing now. It was so good, in fact, there were five articles written in various papers because of the information that was shared that morning by our panelists, and that's why you come to NAOP programs, is to stay informed. So I'm going to go away. You're going to hear applause, and then you'll hear the full program from Alan and Josh. Enjoy. I think our mics are on. Good morning. I think my, yep. <clears throat> okay, we're good. Um, Josh and I have the pleasure of not only having worked together for many, many years, um, but we're also fairly frequent speakers at conventions and seminars and things of that nature, and we know how stultifyingly boring those can be. And as we talked to Dan about how we might handle today, we decided it might be more interesting if we just had a conversation, not, not just between us, but with you. Um, and so hopefully, you're going to see this less as a formal, structured breakfast meeting than a conversation in your living room about Las Vegas, about where we've been, about where we're going, and a number of the specific issues that we know that you face. So we, we have our notes, but I think both of us know that the best conversations come when it's interactive. So I know Dan has a microphone back there. Um, if at any point you have questions, please throw them up this way. Give, give Dan a high, you know, high sign and let the mic come over in that way we'll have a, what I'm hoping is gonna be uh, a pretty interactive conversation. Definitely, don't wait until the end. Yeah. <laughs> um, that said, I think, that, I think it's always important to contextualize Las Vegas and its history, and I think it's more important today because for many people, Las Vegas exists frozen in time from whatever their best memory was. Ironically enough, Dan made the mistake of sharing some of his. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna share them with you because I know this will embarrass the hell out of him. Dan's got the 80s as a time that was really important, and it was. Um, he's a graduate of Gorman, in case any of you didn't know that. I have, have to believe he's mentioned that at least twice to each of you. Um, for sophomore homecoming, they had dinner at the Maxim Hotel with the owner's daughter. Uh, for their junior homecoming, they went to Dome of the Sea. I don't know how many of you remember Dome of the Sea, the great restaurant inside the dunes. Um, and he had a friend who signed for the meal, thought that was the coolest thing he'd ever seen. And then there was the senior homecoming at Gorman at the Bacchanal Room at Caesar's Palace. Yes. And it was comped. Part of the reason I thought we'd start there is the fact that those kinds of things don't happen anymore. Um, the, the business has changed, the customer has changed, and one of the things that all of us as Las Vegans have to sort of fight is this urge to think it's going to stay the way it is, because the city has proven that theory wrong for beyond 100 years now. Uh, whatever was going on in the 40s, as amazing as it was, we had resorts for the first time, where there were pools and landscaping, and that never happened here. Well, that evolved and changed over time. In the 50s, entertainment became a really big thing. 
And entertainment was principally defined as a performer, a stool, a microphone, and a spotlight. Needless to say, that's changed just a little. We started in the, in the 60s, really more into the 70s, to begin to see this idea of conventions coming in. And there, too, changed the properties, right? The convention center itself was built and ultimately expanded. And then several hotel operators thought, it's not a bad idea because, you know, Sunday to Thursday is not the most exciting time around here. <clears throat> Let's put a convention space in. And, and those things, the, the leisure experience, the entertainment, the convention and business segment of the business, all kind of came to, to somewhat of a culmination with the opening of the Mirage. And the reason the Mirage is successful and, and important uh, it, it isn't that Steve Wynn's a visionary. He, he's not. He, he was always the first one to say he's not. But he synthesized all of that stuff and realized that if you put it together in one place, if you built it so that those various components interacted with, um, with one another, you'd have a more successful place. And that's what happened in November of 89 when the Mirage opened. It was really our first integrated resort. That term is principally used overseas. So it's become a bit of a euphemism for a casino. But there's, there's a lot of truth to it. There are all kinds of moving parts that go on within any one of these buildings. And where the casino used to be responsible for 70, maybe even 80% of the revenue back in the 40s and 50s, today, up and down the strip, somewhere between 30 and 35%. By the way, just so we're clear, gaming expense, expenditure, has just gone up with little variants here for recessions and September 11 and things like that. But by and COVID, obviously. But by and large, people are spending more on gambling today as, as witness the fact that we've had how many months now? I've lost track of record gaming revenues, like 12 yeah. or 14. Or, I think it's 16. Yeah, it just yeah, keeps going ridiculous. and going. I saw a story today. I wanted to ask you about this. Um, where where um, the, the guy at Fitch was, was uh, speculating that gaming revenue was going to go down next year. And that sounds like, like oh my god, what, the world's falling apart. What, what does that mean in the big picture of things? I think that means that uh, the strip is still wildly healthy in terms of performance. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a tapping of the brakes if you read the article more than anything else. Uh, in terms of growth. Um, and since uh, candor is the order of the day, I think there were some things that were overlooked in that article uh, that, that uh, for those of you who haven't read it uh, or have read it, might want to think about. Obviously, the convention, the group business piece, which was called out in the article, is incredibly important to, to Las Vegas and the Strip in particular. One thing that was overlooked, though, was the return of international business yeah. and international travel, uh, which brings with it a pretty decent-sized chunk of gaming revenue, which has been and still is relatively non-existent uh, since, since the beginning of the pandemic, really. Uh, it's only been uh, fairly recent that uh, travel restrictions have been yeah. lifted. So um, I think that that tailwind particularly in terms of uh, gaming revenue performance, which is what the article was, was based on, um, is a big chunk that uh, wasn't taken into account uh, by, by the Fitch analyst. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, look, if gaming revenue were to go down a percentage point or two, as, as Josh has suggested, kind of the tapping of the brakes, that, that may not be a bad thing. Um, we've got people with a lot of pent up energy and desire to get out into the world, they also have some pent-up funds. And they haven't, for, the, for, to, for a good many of them, haven't spent them much in the last couple of years. Now, in the last 12 months, that's clearly changing. But even if gaming revenue were to, quote-unquote, go down, um, that's probably, I mean, think about 
the recession happening in the rest of the, well, it's, I don't know if it's a recession, it depends on who you talk to. The economic environment in the rest of the country right now, and we're just rocking and rolling here. I'd be curious to know your, your thoughts on this notion that Las Vegas is recession proof. I, I think we've, we've disproved that, but there, was a, there were a lot of people who thought that. I, I think that, uh, yeah, that's been said for decades now, I think, that Vegas is recession proof. And uh, boy, um, anything could be further from the truth now, uh, given what's gone on in the last couple of years. Um, but I do know that, uh, I do know this, even in times of recession, probably especially in times of recession, people need to have a good time. They need to let their hair down and blow off steam and just forget about the, the troubles of the day. I know I do. Um, and so Vegas, uh, for whatever reason, always serves as that release for a, a great number of people for various reasons. And uh, Vegas, even still, I know we're talking about um, you know, the, the, the evolution of, of value. And uh, you may have seen a recent Wall Street Journal article talking about the um, fees tied to uh, lounge chairs at the pools and things like that. But even with all of that and the parking fees and the resort fees and all the other fees that everyone hates, um, Vegas still represents a tremendous value to the traveler, whether that's a gambling customer or just uh, you know a guy looking to get in his car and get out of town and drive from Southern California to Vegas and just hang out and go to the buffet and do whatever. Um, it, it always has represented that value. And I think because of that, uh, and, and especially during times of recession or economic downturn, when people are looking for more of a value, uh, I think Vegas wins yeah. in, in those cases. And I think that, I haven't really thought about it until you asked me the question, um, I think that is likely the reason why people think that Vegas is uh, quote-unquote recession-proof. Yeah, I think if you, if you look at the numbers compared to where there have been recessions, 70s, 90s, there is always a dip. There's always a dip. Of course, yeah. What's interesting is that it starts later and it tends to recover later. And that, that is different than the pattern that you see in other, in other markets. But I, I, you know, to your point about, uh, we started talking about value proposition, maybe let's talk about the customer first. The, the customers who came here in the 60s and 70s who have black and white Las Vegas etched in their mind. You know, the Rat Pack on stage, um, the, the, the solid metal, uh, small uh, slot machines. Um, they came because there was gambling. They came because there was a, a sex appeal, a really interesting and unique energy to this city that they weren't going to find anywhere else. And and when I say that, let's keep in mind, I mean anywhere else until 1979 when, uh, when New Jersey legalized gambling. Yes. But other than that, granted, if you were going into a gas station and going to the back and they had four slot machines, okay, there was that. But on, a, on any kind of scale, and certainly not on any kind of scale, the way Las Vegas presented itself, which was dressed up, ready to go out for the night having a good time, being fairly elegant, but it was about gambling. By the time you get into the 70s and 80s, anyone who was coming to Las Vegas for the food was a fool. <laughs> there were some wonderful environments. Oma, this would be a great yeah. example, right? The Bacchanal Room, great example. The environments were amazing. It's the food that wasn't all that good. And the reality on the business side is, that in the food industry, Vegas was known as the place you could offload anything. You, you have two container trucks full of lettuce that's right on the edge, boom, into the buffet the next day in Vegas. <clears throat> so, and, and the value proposition was, in effect, cheap rooms, cheap food, lots of action and fun. And that was kind of it. Anyone remember when they used to hand out rolls and nickels up and down the strip? You could walk up, I mean, this sounds insane. People standing on the strip in front of whichever hotel, I'm gonna pick on the Hacienda, no particular reason. You walk by, they'd hand you a roll of nickels and encourage you to go in and spend it. 
I don't know, I must have made 20 bucks that way. That, was, that wasn't bad. Um, obviously, nothing that's happening like that today. Part of that is because not only have the properties changed, the customers changed. And I'll talk a little bit about that, but I want to get Josh's perspective because I think it's, I think it's frankly better than my own, uh, especially as to where we're going. The customer today wants an experience. That experience can be defined as food, shopping, spa, entertainment, or casino. But oftentimes on that list, that experiential list, casino's the last event. Doesn't mean that they won't gamble, doesn't mean that they won't have a good time in a casino. It means they're coming for other things. Oh, I left out nightclubs and day clubs, forgive me. We're, we're, that, exactly. That's, that's exactly, the comment here was on sports now, and we're gonna get right there. Um, it, it's about the experience. In some ways, the fees relate to that as well, because the fees help fund, I mean, we're building hotels now that are in the billions of dollars. Caesars Palace cost $25 million to build in 1966. That is less than you would pay for a search show. That's less than you'd pay for a big nightclub. It's um, less than you'd pay for some restaurants. It's less than you'd pay for some restaurants. That's exactly right. The, there's been an evolution of the value proposition from folks looking for value as perceived as 99 cents, I'm going to get a shrimp cocktail. Today's customer wouldn't want a shrimp cocktail that was 99 cents. <laughs> they are, with all due respect, basically disgusting. <laughs> You'd rather have, even if you paid $18, $25, you want something where the shrimp are tasty and they're big and it's beautifully presented in a gorgeous room by a professional server. That's more of the experience that today's customer wants. But I, let me shut up and let you talk about oh, your customers. Please are. never shut up. Uh, it's a tough act to be on stage with, I'll tell you what. Um, Alan's absolutely right. The evolving Vegas customer, uh, you could hypothesize that that's due to the proliferation of gaming throughout the rest of the country and the world. Uh, you know, it, when Vegas was the only, uh, or Nevada was the only uh, game in the, uh, in the country, that brought anybody who wanted to gamble to the town. And uh, for that reason, gaming in terms of revenue streams tend to over-index uh, and tend to really only bring gamblers. As that evolved and you could go down to uh, you know, the local or regional casino, which was really just a few miles away for the most part for a lot of people in the country, uh, Casino operators and casino owners in Vegas took note and uh, they realized that they needed to become something different. So that led to these elevated entertainment experiences that led to the evolution of Vegas as a, a, a great uh, culinary destination. I'm squeezing a bunch of decades into these statements, by the way. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that was really just table stakes and that gets us to round about the point that uh, the Mirage came to be in 89. And uh, that, that, that one property and that one business model and that one way of thinking about Las Vegas and the Strip as the destination today in 89's version of today and Dan Tuntland's version of today versus uh, you know, the, the, the early years of Vegas um, really set the stage for what we have now. People started that gambled, started bringing their significant others. Uh, that led to an increase in, in retail presence on the Strip. Uh, they liked to go out and eat. That then brought along uh, those, those couple's children, which hung out at the pool, uh, maybe even rode the roller coaster at the uh, short-lived uh, MGM Grand uh, Amusement Park, for those of you that remember that. Those kids started to grow up and traded their roller coasters for DJs and bottle service, and uh, hence the evolution of nightclubs. Uh, those kids then started to uh, become their parents, which is a scary point in anyone's life, um, and really wanted to, to, to start to uh, gamble and, and enjoy that part of 
what uh, Vegas has brought to them. And so that, but they wanted to do it on their own terms and in their own way. And that, to, to some degree, has mystified gaming operators, even to this day. Uh, but that's led to the evolution of online sports betting and online uh, casino gaming, which is not legal uh, in Vegas, but uh, is legal in, uh, in a few jurisdictions around the country. And so I think reflecting on what I just said, if I had to distill it um, down to maybe a couple reasons why the customer has evolved, largely has to do with perhaps the proliferation of gaming throughout the rest of the country um, and uh, the, the, the growing importance of technology yeah. in the gaming experience. Those two things have served as tremendous catalysts for the growth of uh, those few miles here in the valley and uh, along with it came the evolving customer. You're, you're, I don't know if you agree or not. No, I do. I, and I actually think it's interesting because I'm thinking as I'm listening to you that in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, the Gaming Control Board put in new regulations. It was the foreign gaming section of the regulation. Mm. Foreign being a particularly loaded word. That was meant, that what that meant was anything outside of Nevada. If you went to New Jersey, you had to get approval under the foreign gaming section of gaming regulation. That's how myopic we, we were being at that time. And now we had no idea it was going to do what it did. And I'm relatively certain there's a statistic out there somewhere that like 80% of Americans live less than an hour away from the nearest casino. Yeah. Now, don't, don't quote me on that, especially Rick Villata, if you're here. Don't quote me on that. But it, it's not far off from what it is. There's hardly a city that doesn't have a casino, so, or, or at least have one nearby. Do you remember how scared we were of that? I don't know if any of you remember. That was terrifying. Oh my god, New Jersey got casinos. Oh, Vegas going to do? We're going to have to, we're going to have to close down some properties and roll up some streets, and you well, know, nothing like that occurred at all. And then you have the riverboat craze in the early '90s. Same thing here in town. It's going to destroy everything. It didn't. Um, tribal gaming in California. Yes. It's going to eat our lunch. Going to just destroy us. It didn't. You know, I think along the way we kind of forgot the, this really interesting and energizing magic that happens up and down the Strip. And by the way, I'm just curious, have any of you taken a drive or a walk up and down the Strip the last couple of months? Yeah, only a couple of you, and thank you for, for raising your hands about that. Please do that. It is the greatest carnival midway in the history of the world. <laughs> and it's free. Don't forget the experience of just walking up and down. Think of the things that you're able to see. And I'm going to talk about the weird people, although I am. The but weird people are fun to see, too. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. I mean, it's, <laughs> what hotel do you stand in front of, except maybe one in Dubai? that has a fountain show that's choreographed and a soundtrack to go with it. Um, you've only got a few more months, I don't know how many exactly, to catch the volcano at the Mirage. Um, something which I have to tell you, I thought my lifetime would never go away. So I'm shocked, but go see it if you haven't. It's really fun. And, and I'm sure they're gonna replace it with a lot of cool things. I, I'm one who trusts the Hard Rock folks immensely. Um, but there are some things going on on the Strip that are unique in the world. And it starts with the Strip, because it is unique in the world. Um, you know, as the, you, know, you asked about sports, as the, as the community has evolved and has, as gambling has evolved, that's a big part of why sports are here now. The leagues used to take an attitude that, oh, you can't, can't have a team in Vegas because there's gambling there and, and it'll corrupt the sport. And you know, here in Detroit, 
we have no gambling. Here in Boston, we have no gambling. It's total bullshit. But um, in, in fact, I actually, based on FBI statistics, and I don't do math in public, so I'm not going to try and recreate it here, but I was able to, to postulate that there was more money wagered on the New York Knicks game in Madison Square Garden than there was in the Mirage. Every game. That's before New York got casinos, before New York got sports betting. And now New York sports betting is like, you know, the headlines are like, oh, it's exploding. It's amazing. It was there all along. Who are we kidding? Yeah, true. Um, the, the point of this is that once T-Mobile got built, um, the idea that there might be a professional team there was gaining a lot of traction. And in discussions with the NFL, the, the big thing that Mark Davis wanted was to show the other owners that it was safe to have a professional team here. And he hired my colleague, Bo Bernard at UNLV to give an overview of the growth and the sophistication of not just the city, but the regulatory infrastructure. What did that actually look like? Because people outside of Las Vegas, you think we've got you know, guys in, in green visors taking bets on games and you know, they don't understand the, the computers and the math and the, the amazing amount of analytics that go into this. So Bo presents to the owners, and then they have their vote. We were all thinking, you know, it's going to be a 16 to 14 kind of vote. Could be either way. Instead, it was 31 to 1 in favor. And now we have the Raiders, and we have the Knights. And I, I don't, what were your thoughts? Are we going to have an NBA team? Ooh, that is a... That is an interesting topic. I think at some point along the way, we definitely have an NBA team. Uh, and perhaps a Major League Baseball team, too. I, uh, you know, this, this is an interesting market for professional sports. And uh, unscientifically, right, for any of you that have been to a Raiders game or a Knights game, just look around at the uh, away teams, you know, the visiting teams' jerseys in the crowd. And that alone should tell you that it's a very different market for professional sports than most any other market in the country. Um, you know, Vegas, the Strip, has the infrastructure to house all of these uh, visiting team uh, fans. Uh, it's got great experiences around the game, before and after the game, uh, that entice fans to come to Vegas. It just, th there's nowhere else like the Strip to come uh, watch your home team play and make a, an amazing weekend of it and not break the bank, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, if we were to go watch uh, the Knicks play, it would be wildly expensive for us to do it. We'd be running all over town in taxi cabs or Ubers trying to string together other activities to do. In Vegas, it's all right there. And it's all relatively reasonably priced compared to other markets. So I think, uh, you know, I'm pretty bullish on professional sports, it's easy to say that when the Raiders have been a wild success yeah. and the Golden Knights have been uh, just probably the best introduction of a professional sports team ever in any league. Um, I, you know, I think that uh, we, it, it won't be all that long before we see one or both of those teams here in Vegas. It doesn't come without uh, some concern, right? It's <laughs> not lost on me that the Major League Baseball schedule and even the NBA schedule is a bit more uh, full, I'll say, than, than even a hockey, than an NHL schedule. Um, so it, it will be interesting to see how the market reacts to uh, that many games within a season for either basketball or baseball. Um, but I think, and we were talking about this uh, before, before we got on stage, I think if you build the right facility build the right infrastructure around it, and build the right experiences around it, and uh, the strip operators embrace the teams the right way, I think it'll be no problem. You, yes? The same people that are watching you on 
Zoom right now are probably making a sports bet from their phones. <laughs> <laughs> so, Josh, you're probably well equipped, but with problem gambling too, so are you, Alan. What do you think, how does sports betting on your phones drive customers, that whole issue? How does it drive customers just in terms of general sports betting Correct. engagement? You see the ads all the time, BetMGM or BetWin. Sure, sure. Um, maybe I'll go first yeah. and then you jump in. Uh, I think that, uh, look, anytime you make it easier to do something, I'm a simple guy. I like to distill it down to, to simple terms. Anytime you make it easier to do something, it's going to drive increased utilization, right? Um, and that's exactly what online sports betting does. It makes it incredibly easy to place a wager on not only your team, but on a Belarusian ping pong match that's happening <laughs> uh, on the other side of the world at the same time. You'd probably have to go to one of Alan's uh, New York bookies to, to, to do that back in the day. Uh, there was nobody in Vegas making book on Belarusian ping pong. This is true, right? I, I, you laugh, but that, that, that was a real thing yeah. when there were no other sports going on. People were, were placing bets on that. Um, uh, so I think because it's easier, the experience is better. You have uh, more information at your fingertips as a, a, a general you know, sports betting customer. I think all of those things lead to a tremendous uh, increase in engagement. Uh, and the American Gaming Association does a great job of tracking the growth in revenue tied to sports betting, both in a retail setting, like what we're used to here in this room uh, that happened on the Vegas Strip for, for decades, and uh, from an online standpoint using your mobile phone to wager with uh, FanDuel or DraftKings or BetMGM or any of the other operators that are out there. It has uh, rapidly grown the number of people placing sports wagers. On top of that, it's also increased the number of wagers previously established sports betting customers were making as well. Uh, so you've, you've really got sort of a double uh, spike in terms of growth. That brings with it some concerns uh, you know, along with ease come responsible gaming concerns and, and literally there's no one better in the world to answer that part of the question than this man right here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this brief because we didn't come here for a responsible gaming lecture. Um, <laughs> the idea that problem gambling is going to be greater or more of a problem online with sports is theoretically interesting. It has yet to be proven true. Um, yesterday, I sat in on a defense dissertation of uh, one of the one of the well now doctors that I work with, um, where he had he had undertaken a review of quite literally hundreds of thousands of transactions, putting money into an account, taking money out of an account, to try and see what kind of patterns emerged. And just like almost every other form of gaming, 90% of the people who, who are wagering on sports are doing so with less than $100 a month and infrequent betting. The other 10% we need to understand more. They could be perfectly healthy, they, they, but that may be how they enjoy the baseball season or the hockey season or, or God knows, football season. So, we still need to do more work there to understand it. None of this was tied to, um, to observable uh, behaviors. This is just analytics looking at patterns of how money moves in individuals' accounts. Um, we are, frankly, trying to understand whether or not there is any truth to the notion that online play leads to more problems. We, we simply don't know. Um, so one of the companies, I believe it's DraftKings, is a tenant in Uncommons, which is, helps commercial real estate, mm -hmm. you know, very positive. Probably no one more surprised than the landlord. Yeah, we, we've had a lot of growth in, in those companies moving here. Uh, Kindred North America is here yep. in town now. Uh, Entain is establishing offices here or has established an office here. Um, Fan There's also FanDuel yeah, will Fan go through a branding exercise literally in this building yep. uh, in the near future as well. So, yeah, the, 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 
and, and we haven't even started talking about all the tech companies. All of the companies that are providing the back-end yes. technology in, in many cases have, uh, you know, have a presence here. And you know, until it was legal nationally, a lot of these tech companies had to be in other jurisdictions. So it's nice to be able to import some of that talent and some of that, uh, well, frankly, some of that money. You gentlemen touched on sports. F1 is new to us. Mm. Um, how did that become, how did it get here? I mean, I saw a $100,000 package that MGM's offering for F1, and <laughs> what's that look like for Las Vegas? You got to start by giving some stories around Caesar's Grand Prix. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, there was an F1 race here. That's right. Um, back in the 80s in, at Caesar's Palace. <clears throat> Caesar's used to have a whole lot of empty land just to the north of the original Green Tower. Um, most of you are going to be familiar with having walked on that land when you've gone into the forum shops. But before it was the forum shops, it was a surface parking or in all honesty, just undeveloped, just dirt. And um, Bernie Ecclestone, the, the late founder of the, well, I don't know if he was founder, but he was the guy who, who owned and ran F1, um, came to, to see the folks at Caesars to talk about building out a track right there. And that's where the F1 race took place, right at Caesars, in between Caesars and what I'm trying to think of was there anything there besides the jockey club. I mean, it was just pretty barren. Yep. Um, and it, it was, for what it was, a huge success. If anything, I think it just came too early. You know, had the, had the people associated with F1, these are, by and large, top-tier socioeconomic, even the fans. You know, obviously, anyone involved in F1, any of the teams, are crazy wealthy, but the fans are too. And when they came at that time in Vegas, the restaurants were trying to look really good, but they weren't really good. The retail, I, I don't even think there was a Gucci store here. I think the best anyone could offer was, was Saks Fifth Avenue at, uh, at the, the fashion, fashion show. show. So, that 1980s version of Formula One, although successful as an event, it drew all kinds of people in, they paid money for their tickets, probably the most money anyone had ever paid in, here in Las Vegas for, for an event. Um, but it just, it just didn't last because there were other cities that could offer a more varied experience. I'll let you pick up from there. Yeah. I I have a very different memory of uh, those Grand Prix races at Caesars since I was a wee lad back then. I, uh, I remember being, we lived at Rancho in Charleston, and I remember I could hear the cars racing from my backyard, which I just thought was the coolest thing as a kid. Uh, to be honest, I look forward to hearing those cars racing again when I'm sitting in my backyard uh, next year. Um, and I think, uh, you know, this, this all gets back to um, kind of the overarching theme for a lot of what we've been talking about, which is the evolution of, of the customer and the evolution of the strip as a destination to uh, cater to that customer and all of the underpinnings and infrastructure that come along to help support that sort of twin evolution. Uh, and, and a lot of times, Right? Uh, this wouldn't be the first time we talk about something that is um, uh, interesting and has been developed in Las Vegas that was ahead of its time and went away only to come back later. Um, it, you know, I think that uh, given the sort of the international destination that Las Vegas has become, uh, not just for gaming, in fact, uh, not for gaming, for everything else that the city has built around gaming, I think the timing is perfect for F1 uh, to, to take place in the Valley again. I think that that coupled with, as, as we talked about before, the, the return of the international leisure traveler or the international gaming customer, I think it couldn't come at a more perfect time to, to really put Vegas 
back on the map in terms of an international travel destination as well. And gone are the days where those cars are racing uh, you know, behind the strip resorts. They're literally going to be running up and down Las Vegas Boulevard. And uh, you know, what, what better way to punctuate the fact that uh, Vegas is now not just a national, but an international professional sporting destination than by driving F1 car, racing F1 cars, not driving. Right. We've driven NASCARs up and down yeah. the, the strip, but racing F1 cars up and down the strip uh, than, uh, than to do that and to do it now. That's, uh, that's how I feel about it. Just a fair word of warning, by the way. I'm thinking of it only because Josh talked about being able to hear the cars. That's because it was mostly flat, undeveloped land between the fair strip point. and his house at that point. What's going to happen now is all of you in Seven Hills and Summerlin and you know, the far reaches of, of the east side of town, you're all going to be able to hear it. Because what you have up and down the strip is this uh, sort of an acoustic phenomenon of all these buildings. And the sound's going to start bouncing around all the buildings and just <laughs> keep on going. So I, I expect that I'll hear it in my house and that my kids will hear it at their homes. Wouldn't surprise me one bit. And it's going to be a hell of an event. Yes, it will. So if you've never been, um, you know, you may not want to buy you know, multi-day and pit pass and all that kind of stuff. But at least go for a day. At least just go to see what it's like because it's unlike anything you will have ever been to. Um, I just want to talk about real estate. You had said something to me on the phone the other day about the Caesars uh, call yeah. and, and their thoughts about selling a property, which they've been talking about for almost, what, two years? Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd that way. I listen to earnings calls. Uh, did anyone <laughs> else catch uh, that the CEO of Caesars, Tom Rieg, said, well, rewind, right? Everyone knows that Caesars has been looking to divest uh, of a strip asset uh, in some way, shape, or form for the better part of two years, right? That's, that's kind of the worst kept secret on the strip. And in fact, now has made its way in the previous earnings call uh, comments. Um, but this last one, which took place just a few weeks ago, was pretty interesting in that the CEO of Caesars said, you know, we're in no rush. You guys are the ones in a rush talking to the Wall Street analysts um, for, for us to sell this asset, which by the way, two years ago, you thought we were crazy for wanting to do. Um, and he, he said that, uh, and that took a lot of people uh, by surprise, right? The fact that, um, you know, them not needing to sell a strip asset immediately to pay down debt or to deploy towards other projects or whatever, um, that, that certainly had some sense of urgency around them. Uh, you know, people were like, geez, what's going on here? Why, why don't they want to sell? What's going on? Um, and I think what you might um, want to look at is the fact that Caesars, just like a, a, other operators up and down the strip, doing incredibly well right now, right? They had their best quarter in Vegas, I think that they've ever had. Mm -hmm. I think if you added up all of their retail business uh, and all of their hotel business and land-based casino business, they had the best quarter they've ever had. Uh, it's only because they have what is a growing digital online sports betting business, which is not cash flow positive yet, that it dragged their overall earnings down to a point where they weren't having a record quarter. Um, and and that, wasn't expect, uh, uh, that wasn't a surprise, by the way. They expect to lose money. Uh, in fact, most online sports betting businesses expect to lose money right now, which is a whole different topic. But um, the, the point is that it, it was a premeditated loss. He said, you know, take a look at the market. There aren't as many people knocking on our door uh, looking to buy this asset right now. And those people that are are having a tougher time putting uh, a capital structure together that makes sense to actually acquire uh, the property. You have um, probably some of the uh, most likely uh, purchasers in these REITs, uh, which are all, if you look at all their portfolios, you look at the big ones anyways, they're pretty levered up on the strip already. Um, so, which, which brings about, uh, you know, another interesting topic, which is the, 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 the investor in a Las Vegas, Las Vegas strip operation now versus historically. But um, 
fair to say that the market is not as ripe as it was even six months ago uh, to purchase an asset on the Strip. So intelligently, I thought, Tom Rieg said, we're going to wait. We realize we have a premium asset here. It should attract a premium valuation. And if there's not a market that can accommodate that premium valuation, we're going to, to use a term from previous, right, we're going to tap the brakes a little bit. We're still you know, interested in selling an asset. We still think we have too much room inventory on the strip for our business model, but it's not something that we're looking to sell immediately at fire sale prices because we need to pay down debt uh, for some other part of the business. So, to me, that was fascinating. So on that subject, the current landscape, Resorts World opened recently during the pandemic, Fountain Blue's coming, Tillman Fertitta bought some expensive land. Yep. What's your take, the rebranding of Bally's, what's your take on the current and future with that statement in mind? I, the Tillman Fertitta purchase interests me, uh, and we didn't talk about this, but it's, it is a relatively small piece of land, so I am, for one, I'm curious as hell, uh, you know, as to what he plans on doing with that small, albeit very well positioned piece of uh, land that he has. Um, with regard to the, to the building of Resorts World and Fountain Blue coming online, um, you know, again, this, this gets back to kind of the evolution of, of the Strip as a destination and the resorts that uh, these operators build to accommodate the evolving customer. Resorts World is a tremendous example of that. Um, it's a beautiful facility. It's huge. Um, and it brings with it some different ways of operating, right? It brings with it... Uh, a very technologically driven approach to a number of things uh, around payment processing and, um, and uh, uh, loyalty and, and just generally uh, you know, how you book and how you interact with concierge customer service type um, issues. It also brings about the, what I think is a true evolution of this sort of food hall phenomenon. You know, they have more Michelin starred chefs in one place than I think anywhere in the world. And I think half of those, actually I think it's more than half of those, are in food halls slinging you know, chicken sandwiches and things like that, which is, is um, incredibly exciting for a lot of people uh, who follow culinary trends. And that was one big thing that had been missing in Vegas, uh, was this evolution of a really well done uh, gourmet type food hall. And uh, you know, not to dwell on the chicken sandwich, uh, but that, that that has been a home run for them. That is perhaps the most memorable thing uh, about Resorts World for a lot of people that go there, at least uh, that I talk to. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, you have Fountain Blue opening up right across the street. I think the adjacency of those two properties bring some tremendous momentum to the southern, sorry, the northern end of the strip. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what the uh, sort of the ripple effect looks like for others in the area. Um, you know, we talked about the loop. You have the loop connecting uh, Resorts World with the convention center with uh, plans uh, made by the Boring Company to uh, have many more routes, I guess you call them, uh, to other parts of the Strip and, and other parts around the Valley. Um, you know, I think this new development brings with it uh, just a bottom line at a few things. One, it brings great momentum to a part of the Strip that really, really needs it right now. Um, two, I think it uh, brings with it the evolution of new types of offerings like the food hall, like the really technology-driven uh, customer experience. Um, and three, I think it brings with it, uh, particularly for Resorts World, a new operator that was uh, new to the Valley that brings uh, a whole new way of thinking about the gaming business, which to me uh, means that it's going to cause everyone else to change slightly how they do business. And that in and of itself will trigger a broader evolution than just that property by itself. So for whatever it's worth, I am very bullish about Las Vegas over the next, certainly through the end of this decade, if not even uh, into, the, into the 30s. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that you can see people lining up to be ready for growth. Mm -hmm. The south end of the strip is clearly going to get a whole new energy, a whole new life. 
Um, the north end of the strip needed something to kind of trigger it, and that turned out to be the convention center expansion, which, as you will recall, was happening during a really rough time economically. Um, that reminds me that we should never, ever forget how important our airport is. That is probably the jewel of the city. And if you think about, it's almost like if you could chart the growth of the airport to the growth of hotel rooms, they, they've been one step ahead at every single step. So uh, n not only to Rosemary Vassilianos, who's running it today, but to her predecessors um, who ran it in the past and who were pushing and pushing. We've got to have D gates. We have to have E gates. We need another terminal. That was all happening before the market was actually showing that it was in need of it. And yet, it, it's kept us afloat in so many ways. Um, and that's in part why I'm bullish about the remainder of the strip, because our ability to get people here is not going to be impinged because the airport's too small. And I, you know, there are all kinds of cities around the world, just here in the United States, I can think of a few, who have had that problem. Actually, St. Louis comes to mind first. The airport was a mess. No one wanted to put money into it. They just kept doing it drip, drip, drip. Nothing big, no grand gestures. And they've lost. Uh, Southwest is now their anchor tenant. Thank God for them. So a question from the audience was on that. We're going to wait till the end, but it's better now. What's the strip look like in 10 years? It's the crystal ball question that's different than today. Bigger. What's the word? Bigger. A longer, maybe that's a better way of elongated. You know, it, it, didn't it feel as though the strip kind of ended at Twain? I mean, I appreciate, I'm not, I'm not denigrating the wind properties or even the DI before it, but it, it sort of felt that way. It was like there really wasn't an awful lot happening north of Twain. Thank goodness for, uh, for the two wind properties, which are gorgeous. But even they started to feel like they were out there alone. So I, I couldn't agree more. I think Fontainebleau and Resorts World, um, and then don't forget, there's still that space in between Resorts World and Fashion Show, and who knows what will end up there. On the south side, uh, we've already talked about it. Uh, in my mind, within 10 years, there's an NBA team housed down there. Um, there's some really interesting where the Mirage was an integrated resort, sort of everything inside of it working together, I think that there's a slightly different model, only slight, of more of a mixed-use development. Uh, and, and ARIA, uh, not ARIA, pardon me, City Center was pointing toward that, but City Center, even at the end, really was all about the hotel rooms. Um, I, I think, you know, if you, if you look at the track record that Tim Lewicki and his colleagues have, um, I have a feeling that, that we're going to see a slightly different variant, um, you know, sort of Resorts World 2 down at that part of the Strip. They're just going to happen to have an NBA team there, which, uh, which I think is to everyone's benefit. Yeah. I We've think seen... Just to, just to add to what uh, Alan has said in his crystal balling of uh, the Strip in 10 years, totally agree with everything he said, by the way. I think there are two more things that are added. One is... Um, you will definitely see new hotel towers pop up uh, from existing operators, um, whether that's Resorts World building out their second phase, which is just as big as the first, um, or you know you see um, you know it doesn't take too much speculation to think that uh, the the Seminole Tribe and, and Hard Rock on the Mirage property build additional hotel rooms for a bunch of different reasons. Um, you will see more development on existing operator land. And you'll also see, in my opinion, uh, a better public transportation sort of system uh, on and around the Strip. Uh, you know, the monorail was uh, sort of the, the beginning of that thought process. But with the loop being what it is um, and, and the, the, you know, the aggressive growth plans that they have, I think the way you get up and down the strip now will look wildly different from how you do it 10 years from now. 
the land lease downtown's been around forever, but only in the last couple years have the buildings been owned by outside companies and leased by the operators. I mean, what's a Steve Wynn think of that, Alan? You worked for him for a long time of not well, being completely in control of your building. Steve would have hated it. I mean, absolutely hated it. Um, he, he was all about control, um, and quite clearly to his detriment. Um, it, I, it, you know, I can recall, Josh, I know you, you were in many of the same meetings I was, the frustration that the C-suite would express about valuation. Mm. You know, they'd value a, a Four Seasons or Ritz-Carlton at 14, 15 times uh, earnings, and on the casino side, seven, eight, eight times. And, you know, it, it just seemed completely unfair and inappropriate, and discussing it only made it worse. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, the Wall Street community is pretty, pretty tight. And um, they, that's, they, they just, that's how they, they saw the industry. I think when, when you start unlocking the land and seeing the land as an asset, now you got to remember, for most of the strip development, land was barely even a thought. I mean, going back far enough, you could get a, an acre for $1,000 on the strip, not behind it, on it. So, you know, it wasn't really until the land started getting closer to a million and beyond that per acre that the land started to become an issue. I think we've got to the point now where we've, we've I mean, if the objective was to unlock value, the industry has done that. That's exactly what's happened. We have three minutes left. Why don't you guys take oh. us home? Uh, I guess uh, the, the, my, my parting thoughts, which I've sort of uh, said already, are you know, just uh, for all of you, think about uh, what's next uh, for the customers. And you don't have to look just in Las Vegas to determine what's next, right? It's, it's pretty easy to look at, at just broader uh, trends um, uh, throughout the country and the world to see where Vegas is going to. Um, for better or for worse, there's, there's typically a lag time of, of three, four, five, and sometimes more years there to see where the city will ultimately um, point itself. Uh, you know, that is, that is incredibly important, whether that means, you know, the evolution of uh, eSports as, a, as a, a, a real going concern, uh, as opposed to just kind of a, a thing that um, uh, you know, executives do off the side of their desk um, or, or whatever else is, is big elsewhere. Don't, um, don't discount the fact that uh, that sort of bellwether exists. Uh, Alan and I could point to dozens of examples uh, where that has literally proven itself out um, and has represented tremendous financial benefit, not just for the strip operators, uh, but for those of you that represent, uh, you know, those types of land transactions and things like that. Um, and uh, uh, don't underestimate the need to just get out and blow off some steam and find a great place to do it that uh, doesn't look like, you know, the watering hole you go to at 5.30 every Friday. Um, I guess those are the two things I'd say. I think I would simply say that we need to remember as Las Vegans that change has been the, the, you know, the power source of our personality. Change has been unbelievably good for our city. So let's not resist it. Let's embrace it. Let's be thinking about how to make that change productive because that ultimately is going to inure to the benefit of all of us. Nice one. Josh, Allen, thank you so much. Thank you. Let's give him a round of applause. Thank you. you could stay up here, gentlemen. We're going to take a photo before we leave. Uh, thank you again to our breakfast meeting sponsor, Southern Nevada Water Authority, for everyone for attending, both in person and by Zoom. Mark your calendar, September 15th, right here at the Orleans is the next NAP breakfast program. Have a wonderful day.
Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like this show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.